So thanks very much for the uh, opportunity to come and uh, join the conference and, and speak. Um, I'll, uh, so I'm from International Alert. You can see our rather gaudy um, slogan or logo up on the top left there. Some people think it's the hand of peace. Others say it's a bunch of bananas. I'll leave you up to you to choose. Um, or it could, be, could indeed be the dove of peace. Someone's left the eye, in the, the eye off the dove of peace. Um, so I'm going to talk, introduce the concept of positive peace. And I'm not going to go back into academic um, interpretations. Uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to talk about it as we use it as International Alert, which is a peace-building uh, organization based in London and working in 25-plus countries around the world for the last um, 30 years as a, with the peace-building specialism. Um, certainly, positive peace was not our idea, but we absolutely embrace it and have adopted it in our sort of formal um, definition of our mandate and mission. And we actually have, if you're interested, we have a, something called our Programming Framework for International Alert, which we published in January 2010, which is completely built on our interpretation of the idea of positive peace, which is on our website if anyone has any interest. And I'm happy to leave a copy here for Liz or, or whoever. Um, I, I suppose positive peace did, was, was defined by a Galtung in the early 60s, and I think it's kind of interesting, doing a little bit of background research for this talk, I, I googled positive peace and I found that there's the Galtung version, which is probably what you'd expect as a definition coming out of Norway in the 1960s, very much a left-wing focus on equality um, and structural violence and structural peace. But I also found someone I hadn't heard of before called Rudolf Rummel, or Rummel it may well be, who's a recently deceased American right-wing professor of international politics who embraced positive peace, I think from more of a sort of a right-wing perspective. As far as I could see, Professor Rummel's life work was to count how many people were killed because of communism. And it was something like 220 million, I think, at his last count. Um, so I'd, interesting just to say that positive peace is, wi is widely interpretable. And so it should be, I think. I don't think there's a rule book for thinking about peace and peace building. I think you could even imagine Hobbes seeing some of his thinking um, uh, coming out in the positive peace concept. So what I plan to do is just set out what I understand and international understands it to mean, compare it with negative peace very briefly, um, and then explain how we understand the use of the positive peace framework for developing programs with people in conflict-affected contexts and working to try and help them build their peace through what for us is the positive peace um, lens. Uh, give a couple of examples, and if I have time, just mention a couple of the challenges which I think come with the positive peace and peace-building territory. So, um, first thing I want to say is, I think from the positive peace perspective, conflict is not only normal when more than one or two people try to coexist, but it's also helpful. Uh, without conflict, there wouldn't really be a lot of progress. Um, we're here we are in a, one of the best universities of the world, which has probably defined itself around the idea of people arguing over what is, what is correct and what is not correct. Uh, we're fortunate to live in the post-enlightenment era where, where we can see that conflict is, is a useful tool for progress as long as it remains non-violent and, and participatory and inclusive. That's, so with that in mind, the way we uh, interpret peace, the idea of positive peace, is that peace, hope you can read that, peace is where people are anticipating and managing conflicts without violence. So if conflict is normal, seeing where the conflicts might be coming up, managing the conflicts which do arise, and trying to achieve some sort of positive outcomes uh, without recourse to violence of any kind, but critically, and are making progress in their societies. I'm a great believer, and I'm sure you are, in the importance of progress. 
I don't think any society has quite reached the state we would love it to have reached. And uh, therefore, progress, continued progress is essential, improving the quality of life. And so peace, which is a static peace, is definitely not uh, in line with the concept of positive peace. And then we would add, or we do add in our definition, that this, uh, we have to take into account the needs of others beyond one's immediate circle. So peace is where people are anticipating and managing conflicts non-violently and engaging in inclusive social change processes and are doing so without the possibility, without compromising the next generations and indeed without compromising others alive today. So I would take, I would take it from this definition of positive peace that although if I ask my aged parents living in Tunbridge Wells in, in rural Kent, are they living in a peaceful environment? I'm sure they would say yes. I would challenge their yes with this by saying that I think your peace is at the expense of others alive today. And quite possibly, given climate change, your peace today is at the expense of future generations. So it's a very big and hairy definition of what we call interdependent uh, positive peace. Um, try challenging myself to come up with examples of positive peace, I would say nowhere quite made it, but I think where there are some good examples one can point to, people always talk about the post-World um, War II Europe and the European Union as being an example of positive peace. I think the South African transition is an example where there's been a lot of uh, elements of positive peace there. Northern Ireland, indeed. One, one looks for negative peace examples. They are legion, but uh, the situation in the Middle East with Israel and its neighbours, the situation in South Sudan, uh, the situation in the South Caucasus, where there's a sort of a frozen uh, conflict, set of frozen conflicts. Some examples which are probably emblematic of, of a negative peace. So if that's a positive peace, because a negative peace is where we perhaps are no longer hurting each other, but we are not making progress, and we're, we're not anticipating and resolving the conflicts which we have or may have. I would say one can look for examples of positive and negative peace, but more commonly, there's a bit of both. Um, and actually, I wouldn't want to say that negative peace is not a useful peace, as long as we see it as a temporary situation. A negative peace where people can be brought together or bring themselves together to stop the violence which they may be committing towards each other, but to use that opportunity to build the capacity to manage and resolve their conflicts, their, violent, uh, their conflicts non-violently in the future, is, is, is the opportunity provided by a negative peace. It's a sort of a breathing space. I think it's a truism in the, in the world of sort of peace studies that there is no peace agreement which is more than a ceasefire. So every peace agreement should be seen not as a settlement, but a ceasefire, because it's virtually impossible to reach a true settlement uh, after uh, a period of, of fighting uh, at any level. And I would say that that definition of peace for me applies at every level and in every sort of every scale. So that's definition of peace, I hope, applies most of the time in my own nuclear family, uh, in my own community, uh, in my country, in Europe, the region, and, and globally. One, it doesn't apply, of course, at a lot of those levels, but um, one can apply that definition of peace and positive peace and negative peace at any level one likes. So how does one recognize um, this rather abstract idea of peace? Not particularly... Um, not particularly creatively, we came up with five areas, five categories that we thought are, are, are normative ways in which one, one can recognize positive peace. We said, first of all, power and relationships. When leadership is legitimate, when there is accountability, when there is participation in decision-making, 
when there are functional vertical and horizontal relationships, by which we mean relationships between and among people and peoples, and relationships between citizens and their governors, and where there is a sense of responsibility and responsiveness and inclusion. Huge number of sort of social and political norms and goods uh, implied in that one. So when these are good, when these are at a high level, we say that's a, that's a situation in which there's a fair amount of positive peace. We say when people are feeling safe or secure, uh, and that that is something which is not restricted to groups of people, that it is an inclusive safety, um, then there's likely to be a positive peace. Um, I think fairness is what runs through all of these five categories. We say that when there is justice, and I don't really mean the concept of social justice here, I mean that people can get redress when they feel that some harm has been done to them, um, and that access is not arbitrary and is inclusive and fair. We say that we kind of threw, well, let me go to the fifth one first. We said the, the fifth one is about economy. So when people have access to livelihood opportunity uh, and the opportunity to make savings and accrue some sort of assets, be they assets owned by them or assets owned by the community or the welfare state or whatever, that's a situation in which there's more likely to be positive peace. And then we kind of threw everything else um, into this heading of well-being. So the living environment, services, psychosocial, shelter, health, education. And after the talk last night, I would probably include culture in that one as well. We say that when you have these five, um, when you have these five areas which are fair, um, there's a, a high degree of positive peace. And by, by contrast, if there are any of these are quite, score quite low in any given situation, then one is more in the territory of negative peace. We had a long discussion in International Alert about which one is most important. As you can probably guess, we thought this, this one was, the sort of the relationships, the governance, the participation one. But at, in the end, we tested all of them, and we found that without any of these five, it's quite difficult to imagine a situation of sustainable, positive, uh, peace, peaceful coexistence. So we, our sort of particular diagram has the arrows floating in every direction. Um, I won't go into that. I think you're going to hear about this in a moment from one of my co-panelists. I won't. Just to say that there are many other interpretations of positive peace, but I think they do, they, they're, they're quite, um, they, they share a, um, a lot of features. Um, from, so how do we use this in international alerts? I'm really going to talk about our experiences here because uh, that's what I know best. Um, so that's our definition of, of peace. Peace is when people are anticipating and managing conflicts without violence, etc. So we say, if one is analyzing the degree of positive peace. One is looking at those five factors, the conditions which contribute to and enable or uh, conversely disable uh, peace. So that's our analytical framework. Critically in doing this analysis, so I work for a UK-based um, NGO which employs about 350 people around the world. Most of those people are people in and from the countries where we work. So I don't think one can do peace unto others. Uh, peace is something which people have to build their own peace themselves. Uh, we feel we can provide some support and help to that. But uh, the analysis, therefore, has to be very participatory. There's no point coming from the outside and deciding um, how peace is and, uh, and, and how peace can be uh, more effectively built. So we, so we sort of start from the back and say, how peaceful is this situation? Um, 
what are the, where are the opportunities in terms of helping people change their attitudes, their knowledge, their understanding, their capacities, their behaviours, their relationships, their idea of the possibilities uh, which could make a difference to these factors. And then for us, we say that we do research, advocacy, training, we accompany uh, others' activities and we do a lot of convening of dialogue designed to impact people's attitudes, knowledge, understanding, etc., hopefully at the institutional level, and therefore contributes to a strengthening of these uh, peace factors. Um, probably you can see from this that almost anyone can do peace building because almost any human endeavor is somehow linked to these issues. And I think it's really critical that, to, to, to get across the idea that peace building is not a ghettoized thing. It's something which, just as anybody can create negative peace and contribute to negative peace, anybody can contribute to positive peace. And I think one of the great things about the Sustainable Development Goals was that the, the government, the states of the world, agreed that peace and justice and good governance, uh, Sustainable Deve Development Goal 16, is, is one of now the sort of public goods which we, uh, which we uh, all want to try and achieve around the world. But it's also true that in almost all of the other sustainable development goals, one can see elements of peace. So I think one can build peace through all sorts of uh, mechanisms and ways at every level. Um, that's not to say, however, that it's automatic. I do think this, it's quite important, this idea of pur purposefulness and mindfulness. It's quite important that, well, I wouldn't want for So I do quite a lot of work with mining companies as part of our peacebuilding uh, work. And I, one thing I say to them is just because you are contributing to the economy doesn't necessarily mean that you're contributing to a peaceful, uh, peaceful coexistence. There's got to be, I guess, what one might call intentionality or purpose. Uh, in there. It's got to be something that's part of the strategy or part of the, the policy uh, goal. So a few ex examples very quickly of how we have aimed, we tried to contribute to peace. If I take Congo, we've been working in the Democratic Republic of Congo, the eastern part of the country, for about 15, 17 years now, I think. Some of the things we're doing there, and we like to think they link in with what a lot of other people are doing there. We do a lot of, we see at the moment there's not a lot, we don't have a lot of faith in building peace at the national level in Congo. There's just too many, too many um, forces ranged against uh, the ability of a small NGO like us to make a difference there. So we work particularly locally and in the eastern region of the country. Some of the things we do there is we do a lot of real community grassroots peace building work. So working with local NGO partners to resolve, sorry, to resolve very local context, uh, conflicts over land, for example, uh, by bringing together community members from different ethnicities, different age groups, men, women, um, including the powerful and, and, and I think in some cases the, the less powerful, to, um, to improve their ability to manage particular disputes mostly over land which occur, to try and stop those disputes from uh, becoming bigger than they otherwise uh, would have become. And we have a very, they have a very high success record now in resolving some of those disputes with our assistance. We're part of a big movement in Congo called Rien Sans Les Femmes, which is a movement of uh, Congolese, uh, women, mostly women's organizations, fighting for, to get more women uh, into positions of political power. One of the great things about Rien Sans Les Femmes is that 
I think while they used to be very much fixated on elected positions in provincial and national uh, parliaments, they're much more uh, now looking at local politics and, and getting uh, young and, and other women engaged in resolving uh, local political issues at the community and the, and the provincial level. We work with a lot of uh, cross-border traders um, in eastern Congo who cross the border between Congo and the neighboring countries to the east. The idea being thereby that we help them improve their livelihoods. Because we have helped them to reduce the amount of friction and hassle they get from, from uh, border officials, we feel that there's an, or they feel that there's an improvement in their relationship with the state. They have slightly more trust of the border officials and less bribes are being paid. And to some degree, they have improved their relationships with their brothers and sisters across borders. So there's a, quite a lot of um, good sort of peace outcomes uh, there. And then another thing we've been doing there is working with other organizations on micro-infrastructure projects, which are good for peace. So one, the model there is that there's a small amount of money available to communities. They come together and they decide what small infrastructure project they would like to invest in. It could be a bridge, it could be re rehabilitation of a road or the marketplace. And, and the idea is right from the beginning there has to be some sort of peace element uh, to that, which is part of the discussion we have with them. And uh, so little by little, small ways of improving participation in decision making, improving economic opportunities, improving functional uh, horizontal and vertical relationships, for example. I think I'm probably almost out of time, so I won't give any more examples now, but happy to uh, later on. The thing I would just add, I think, is that um, I think in terms of challenges, this is a wonderful idea which came out of a safe academic environment in Norway in the early 1960s. And when this idea hits the real world, it, is, it can seem a little bit abstract. It can seem a little bit too long-term to many other actors. I, my personal belief is that this is a really important way to think about human coexistence and human flourishing. But uh, if I talk to people in the British government, for example, including, I guess, Marcus here, <laughs> who's a civil servant, uh, they, they, they're either politicians or they're, or they're asked by politicians to get something done today, please. And this stuff is very long-term. And I think, generally speaking, the, while NGOs and academics can take a long-term view, most institutions and most people have a very high discount rate on the future. And we want something very soon. We want benefits very, very soon. So I think when using the idea of positive feast, we've got to be quite canny and we've got to blend it into the narratives that other people already have. And rather than challenge their narratives, find ways to fit uh, this sort of narrative into their narrative. Otherwise, it quite commonly gets rejected by people who want to get something done now. And I don't know if any of you are familiar with the idea of wicked problems and wicked problem solving. Peace building is, so wickedness, is, wickedness is, comes from city planning from the 1970s, I think, and it's, wickedness is the idea that it's multidimensional problems to the power of multidimensional problems, and city planning is a great example of that, where there's so many factors one's got to take into account, it's very hard to even define what the problem is, let alone come up with a solution. And if you don't know it, it's a really interesting idea. So peace and conflict is very much in the, in the area of wickedness, and I think the two tribes who I would suggest can never really get their heads around dealing with wicked problems are the, are the media, the journalists, mm. and the politicians. You know, their job is to simplify and simplify and simplify. 
And so it is very difficult sometimes to get these uh, kind of ideas across. And the other challenge I would just end with is as a peace builder, I think it is, well, we know it is very interesting and quite complicated ethical territory to be taking a framework like this to communities in, let's say, Lebanon where we work or Congo or wherever else and saying, we think there's something here that's useful to you, even though we don't really have evidence that over the long term it really will work. Uh, so although I have absolute faith in this idea, I'm very, very wary about foisting it on anybody else in terms of um, in their own uh, conflicted environment. So, one, so what that means is I think in using this idea of peace building, one has got to be incredibly careful not to impose one's ideas and one has got to uh, use uh, as participatory approaches as possible in determining plans of action and, be, and measuring whether those plans of action work and be ready at all times to walk away if others are not buying uh, the idea. So with that, I think I'll make space for someone else.